Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings and it would be awesome to see you on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's and all ads get a personal message from me and then you can also follow the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK always very entertaining to see Jason's tweets but to the show today and I'm thrilled to welcome a fellow Brit to the show today in the form of Tim Eads now Tim is one of the Valley's leading CEOs as CEO of VArmor the industry's first distributed security system that provides application aware micro segmentation Tim joined VArmor as CEO in October 2013. Prior to that, he was a CEO at Silvertail Systems until the company was acquired by RSA, the security division of EMC, in late 2012. Prior to leading Silvertail Systems, Tim was CEO of Everyone.net, an SMB-focused SaaS company that was acquired by Proofpoint. Tim's also held sales and marketing executive leadership positions at BEA Systems, Sana Security, Phoenix Technologies, and IBM. I do also want to say a big thank you to Jonathan Lear at Workbench for the intro to Tim today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform, and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web, with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all SASTA listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Eads, CEO at VArmor. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Tim, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. A huge thanks to John Lear at Workbench for making the introduction, but thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to talk to another British person. I was about to say it's wonderful to have a Brit on the show, but I want to get started today with a question that I've been dying to ask since reading it, and it's how on earth did you make the transition from punk rock to SaaS CEO and now CEO of VArmor? Well, you know, I think think punk rock was a very disruptive force, and I think... um, I don't know. It, it, I always look at it that just try and do something different. If you really want to sit behind a cube and go to work nine to five, watch your world go by, then go ahead and do it, but don't work with me. The journey is the reward and the ultimate journey is your life, right? And so I, I was jumping around in mosh pits and punching people and doing everything else with a bleached hair and Dr. Martin boots and all the normal stuff. And I always just wanted to do something differently and make the most of every single step in your life. And, you know, I've been in the Chu Chi tunnels of Vietnam when I was 21. I was in the L.A. train station when the Rodney King riots happened in the early 90s. And, and I, so I think what happens is you've got, got to make life a, a journey that you would not want to tell everybody about and every minute about. And, and, and being a punk rock guy jumping around punching people was just the start. And so then when you become a CEO, you just want to disrupt things and just drive things differently. Otherwise, you know what? Go sit in a cube. Go work for a bank. Sit there and watch the world go by. Have your 2.5 kids. Buy your Ford, which is a great life. But I think you should make more of it. Absolutely. I know. I- I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I do want to discuss then making more of it then, because 
was I was chatting to Jason Lemkin before the call, and he said about um, kind of second time and serial CEOs and founders, and he said that uh, they often take the same approach in terms of realizing that once you hit product market fit, it's a relative playbook in terms of scaling everything the same way. Do you agree with this comment, I guess? And when you look at your differing roles now that you've had a CEO, is that how it's played out as a playbook? Yeah, so it's quite interesting, right? Um, in America, 97.3% of CEOs are only first-time CEOs. So, but I do think your ability to apply experiences from different jobs helps you grow and it helps the people around you grow. So SaaS models in particular, is it about product market fit? Everything's about product market fit, but do you scale in the same way? So for example, one of my first companies that I ran was an SMB email archiving mobile technology company that lived after about 105,000 small medium businesses, right? And the way that the metrics were done on that business were, was cost of customer acquisition against monthly reoccurring revenue. So if you cost, uh, I don't know, 100 bucks to get the customer, and how, what, what period of time did it get you to get it back? And so then you look at monthly reoccurring revenue, then if you get to slightly bigger SaaS models, you can get to where you start to run the model on ACV, and then you obviously have total contract value and bookings value. But ACVs are, are interesting. As you change from a small a company that focuses on small medium businesses versus selling to large banks and telcos and stuff, there's another piece to it that becomes very important, which is incremental account opportunity. So let's say that, um, I don't know, John works at Nike and you're, you're, you're selling a company product into Nike. The ACV on your initial deal is incredibly important that you structure a contract correctly, a multi-year contract, whatever it may be, and you track and you measure your business on ACV. However, as you go through different rounds of funding, the other thing to really understand is not just that deal and that contract, but the incremental account opportunity. So we call it IAO. So what is left in the wallet of the customer that you have direct permission or adjacency to go after? One of the problems that you have in a SaaS company that a lot of people go wrong is they leave it too late to start building the second product. And then they start, and then they have problems around how to get adoption of the second product. But if, if you only did, and let's go back to the email company that I ran, if you only did email, right? And let's say John at Nike has, a, I don't know, say 10,000 employees, and you sold them all the email, then as soon as you've done that one deal and you're tracking your ACV for Nike for 10,000 employees, that's okay. But you need to start adopting archive or mobile or whatever the other adjacent products are in your category, whether it's human capital management or um, CRM or whatever it may be. So the challenge is, yes, it's a, a playbook around ACV and scale. You've got to understand your metrics that allow you to scale. For example, cost of customer acquisition against monthly reoccurring revenue. But you also have to watch for the incremental account opportunity that you're allowed to go after based on the product that you provide. And you can't leave it too late to start building that product because it will take a while to get it right. And if you leave it too late, your business traction will run out of steam. My word, I've got so many questions off the back of this as a, as a metrics nerd myself. I want to I ask, when is too late? How can a startup founder know that they've kind of proliferated the budget there and there's still X percent remaining? How do they know when that's happened? Is that when implementation's done and a month later you upsell? Or is it a year in when you've built that loyalty and that customer retention? What is that moment of transition from kind of happy current to let's upsell? So that's a great question. So let's roll it back. Let's say you are rolling out a product and you're, you're selling a SaaS-based product into a reasonable size mid-market organization of, say, a thousand employees. Any any product takes time to be adopted within the customer category. This just is, whether it's human capital management, email, whatever it may be, contact management. But you have constantly been going to be asking the questions, what's your adjacent products, and understanding what you have the domain permission to go kill. 
if you if if you look look at North America, there are 23 million small businesses in North America with under 50 employees. Obviously, I only had 105,000 SMBs at my previous company. However, you have got to make sure that you are starting to build your new product probably about a year to 14 months into shipping of your first product. The reason why is you're not going to get it right, and it could take a year to get it right. Get the UI right, get the pricing right, get the market right, get the feature compatibility right. So let's say you start shipping an email product into those 105,000 SMBs that you're looking after and you're growing. If you waited two years right, to start building an archiving product, it's too long. Because while you have a very sticky product, you need to make, start making sure that given, let's say it takes a year to get the new product right. That means if you didn't start building for two years, it's three years before you have upsell opportunity in your existing accounts, which is way too long. Obviously, every company is different. Every market is different. But the kind of my gut feel would be for when you start shipping your first SaaS product into that's a business product, um, you probably need to start building your new product 14 months, 15 months later, and then iterate it out into your install base, into your trusted customers. Because it will take you, like I said, nine months to a year to get it hardened, to get the UI right, to get the experience right, get the pricing model right, get the provisioning model right. And so, therefore, within two years, you have a business model that you're landing customers, you're tracking against monthly recurring revenue, then at the same time, you're building your next generation product to upsell based on your incremental opportunity. Another question offshooting that is you said about a good determinant of success being the, the CAT to MRR ratio. What is good to you? You've seen many different businesses now. What, when you look at it, would be good? Is it the kind of hallowed three to one? Is it different for you? So, yeah, it's a great, great thing. So we, uh, at Viama, we go after very large uh, regulated industries that are trying to protect workloads and clouds and data centers around the world, right? We track very carefully the initial contract value to the landing spot in the account. And then we track the upsell of new products to existing customers and then the expansion of the initial landing spot. So let's say, let's go back to Nike and I'm just picking on Nike because it's easy. Our initial account opportunity the deal was typically three to five hundred k, but in a in a bank or a telco or something like a Nike would be an extra three or four million. In a telco or a bank would be an extra fifteen million. So the initial landing spot, we track the incremental account opportunities very very carefully. So we don't really care about monthly recurring revenue. We don't really care too much about cost of customer acquisition. We care about a different set of metrics. Our metrics are based on ACV per sales rep and when do they get their first deal. So our sales reps get their first deal within six months and they get their second deal within nine months. And typically what happens after that, you hit your, uh, they start paying for themselves. So you get to a model where they start to bring it in 250K to 350K ACV. Then they start to roll out a model. So we care less in our model because we do large accounts uh, about cost of customer acquisition against against monthly recurring revenue. We do more about ACV productivity per sales rep. And then we look at when can you start landing that uh, initial customer on the sales rep productivity model so that if they start getting their first, if the order across the, the world, they start getting their first deal within six months, second deal within nine months, they start paying for themselves, then you can start to scale the model. Again, you stay very close to the verticals because you, it's an early market mover model. It's a different set of metrics. Does that make sense? It does indeed. I recently interviewed uh, David Steinberg at Zeta Global, and he said that if uh, if a sales rep doesn't pay back their, their kind of compensation within nine months, it's kind of a see you later. What's your take on the payback period for sales reps in terms of what they bring back? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the famous line about sales reps is, oh, there's only two, type, uh, two types of salespeople, right? Rich and you. So, <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't heard that one, but I like it. Yeah, yeah but, so, yeah. No, I, I think it's absolutely right. I think you're looking at like a nine-month window of they have to have productivity. The other thing that you it's a little bit harsh in an early-stage company purely to look at ACV. It's much more important, I, I think, to complement that with early indications of activity. So, you know, for example, in our market, about 99% of the customers will test the product first. So understanding the proof of concept or proof of value and how many are they, uh, how many of them they are doing a, a quarter, because then you map your conversion rate to the POCs of to the sales rep to the productivity. So what, and that's another big thing that a lot of startups make mistakes around is they look at, well, the sales rep's got to pay for himself within nine months or he's out. Well, yeah, that's right. But you, know, you can't get to nine months and then go, he's out. It's much better to tune the activities and the metrics further upstream so you can understand activity because activity will breed results. So if you understand what he's doing or she's doing on a weekly, monthly basis, and then into a quarterly basis on POCs and then the conversion rates of those POCs to contractual negotiations all the way through it, then you don't get to um, nine months and then fire the guy. You understand the metrics and you could have got rid of the guy before or you could get, get rid of him a little later depending on how how many things he's got going on i, I am super intrigued though because you said about the differing acvs that you serve and saying 300 to 500 to a couple of million to even 15 million for the telcos and the banks what does it take then in terms of sales team structure as i said you've seen many different organizations what does it take in terms of sales team structure to really orchestrate and navigate those big big seven figure deals that, that you do close on a regular basis so the it's a great question one of the challenges most staff startups have is understanding the, the buyer and it, do they have multiple buyers. Most startups that you ask, you always go like, who is your buyer, economic buyer, and who's your technical buyer? And most most VCs and most other entrepreneurs will go, oh, okay, it's that. But they never ask, do you have multiple buyers? And in order to get these larger deals, you typically have multiple buyers, right? Because the power is moving to the line of business. So they are, they are a power. You have your user, your operator of the product. Are they a buyer? And so in our world, we have have three buyers. We have the infrastructure buyer, we have what we call the compute buyer who understands servers and server virtualization, and then you have the security guy. So we have three buyers, which means we have to navigate those organizations. We actually give them a score internally. The sales rep gives them a score between minus three and plus three, whether they whether they understand the technology, whether they understand the, the market movement towards software, etc. And by doing that, across those three buyers, you can come up with a, essentially a formula of whether the customer is more likely to, to order our software. So I guess the point is, how do you navigate it is fundamental down to understanding the buyer, uh, economic and technical, and pushing and pushing and pushing the sales rep to understand are there more than one buyer, where are you with this person, and navigating this organization. And then the, the way that that rep has to do it is he or she needs to know that they're going to lose a loan, but they're going to win together. And so by bringing in the executive team, bringing in the product team, bringing in the, the board if, if required to help you navigate that account is, is a big part of their responsibility. You said about the buyer there. I'm intrigued. With, we've heard a lot about the rise of bottoms-up sales processes, but you sitting at the forefront of kind of big ACVs, has the rise of bottoms-up sales really had an impact on these big buyers and the big CIOs who are spending a lot on ACV with regards to the bottoms-up sales process? Has it really made a difference to that traditional model? Yeah, so it's a, that's a great, great question. So um, let's, let's pick, a, pick an example of a bottoms-up ACV company 
company. Slack. Um, I, I, yeah, Slack is going to be the new Netscape, so let's pick one that's going to win. <laughs> that's a little harsh. That's a little harsh. Um, but um, um, it's good as Splunk, right? So Splunk about five years ago, maybe seven years ago, was pretty much viral. Went everywhere. Elastic is the new Splunk, if you will. And it gets absolutely everywhere. Bottoms up model, DevOps model, whatever it may be. But um, you'll come in that way. Also, we have to define what, what is large ACB. So let's say you were selling to a bank. Let's say Lloyd's Bank. Um, is 50K um, a large ACB or is it's 500K a large ACB? I'd say 500. I think, see, I, see, I think 500 is getting there. So I think you can do a bottoms up model pretty well to get to 50, 250K a year out of say a Lloyd's Bank pretty easily because you come in at a departmental level, you come up, you know, you can link to different buyers pretty easy, pretty virally where you go. But if you're going to get 5 million or, or 2 million ACV out of Lloyd's Bank, you need to go to somewhere with senior sign-off model. So if you follow the Splunk model, right, or the Elastic model, they come in low, they, they, they bubble up, they bubble up, they bubble up, then they turn around and they go, look, I've got you, Lloyds Bank, at five different departments. Why don't you do some sort of major contract? That way you don't need to track it and I don't need to track it and you pay me a decent amount of money. So the ACB model, as it leads to grounds up, is basically down to your market. If your market is driving you that you think a, a large ACB deal is only 100K, and I was, I was out having a beer last night with a friend of mine, and he was was like, yeah, my new company is doing this new company. He goes, yeah, I think my, my ACV is going to be 50 to 100K. I'm like, no, no, no one ever negotiates you up. And so you got to make sure you understand where your what your market can do and what your market can bear. Sure answer is yes, the, the bottoms up stuff still works and it works brilliantly. And Elastic is the, a great version of that. Splunk is the poster chart of it. However, watch for it because you have to make the rotation to get to the large deals to go senior to get larger sign. Super interesting. No, that's really interesting because I, I didn't have that perspective beforehand but but i do want to dive into a quick fire round that we call the 60 seconds faster so i say a short statement and then you give me your thoughts in 60 seconds per one how does that sound sure whatever you want so let's do creating a generation of wealth what do you mean by this i think one of the biggest things and the most rewarding things you can do as a ceo and entrepreneur is create wealth for your employees and shareholders i'm trying to create a billion dollars worth of wealth you know, an eight to 10 year period for the people that work for me or with me and the shareholders around me. Um, yeah, I'm about three or 400 in right now. So I'm very confident I can make that, but it's about cascading wealth so that they don't have to pay for their college funds. It's about hiring an engineer and saying, you don't have to, your kids can go to the best college now because you work with me. No, I imagine that's an incredible feeling. Uh, what about the major security industry disruptions? I think cloud is disrupting everything. It's repricing IT. It's changing the way the infrastructure as a service is priced, platform as a service, software as a service. It is driving change across the board, and it's including security in it. It is getting more complicated to insert into the market, harder to differentiate, but also it is increasing your uh, your attack set. So security disruptions itself, I think you've got to move into software. You have to do things faster. It's more about the usability than it is about the efficacy. And Tanium is the shining light on that. But security, all the old guard, all these old people buying appliances, they're all in deep, deep shit. And this is all going to go to software. It's going to be abstracted from the infrastructure. And one product can do more than the traditional appliances. It can do. It can integrate the capabilities of these appliances and do it software at a fraction of the price. But cloud is disrupting everything in IT. And the security is, you know, if you're an old guy, old appliance guy, you're going to get flattened and you can. Blame 
blame Biama or otherwise, but you should be looking towards Seattle and blaming Azure and, and uh, AWS. Mm-hmm. And then what's your favorite SaaS reading material? What are the must-reads when it comes in for you? Uh, the must-read books for me, I mean, the, the best book I think that, I think, well, there's like three or four books. Best book ever to read, in my opinion, is um, you know, Good to Great by Jim Grant. The, what they talk about in that book about level five leadership, I think is incredible. Who moved my cheese? Yeah, you got to read that. The book I think that is underserved right now, Reciprocity Advantage, about how you move to outcome-based pricing, I think is something that is going to get more Sorry, what's that called? Reciprocity Advantage. Okay. Um, is a really interesting book around how you do outcome-based pricing. So, for example, if you're going to do, let's say you're selling a compliance-based solution to try and improve people's compliance, do you just sell the product or do they pay more when they're compliant? Boeing is moving this model now 15, 20 years ago when you're, you're let's say you're going to order an aircraft, you would just pay Boeing up front and then you would take delivery of it in like, you know, five years or whatever it is. Now, um, they're moving to a model where you pay them when the plane is operating. And so that that model to outcome-based pricing is something that's I like. That's another one. Those are my top three. I can I got loads more. And, you know, who says anything's kind of fast? And then, and then a final quickfire one, and it's the biggest fundraising lesson learned in the many times of being a CEO. I'll give, can I give you more than one? Sure. All right. Um, whatever you raise will last 18 to 20 months. It doesn't matter whether you raise 2 million or 20 million. Think of it like a goldfish. You'll always grow to the size of the ball. Just is what it is. So just think 18 to 20 months. Number one. Number two, raise 35 to 40% more than you expect because it's just better that way. You, all, you, you can't foresee the unforeseen and it's just, you should always raise 30, 40% more than what you thought and do it deliberately. So that'd be number two. And number three, the way to do it is raising money takes at least five months, at least five months. Anybody that says less is just plain wrong. You need to nurture relationships. You need to drive and orchestrate the process. But from when you start nurturing relationships to when the money's in the bank, and that's where people get wrong. They think it's to the term sheet. It's about five months. It is what it is. So you need to make sure you've got to back into the timeframes and and look at it that way. Mm -hmm. No, I think those brilliant fundraising tips uh, and many often uh, that not many people uh, do address. But I want to finish today and moving out of the quick fire on the element of people in the team and we've been relatively metric focused this episode but on the people in the team element one thing I've observed with kind of seasoned founders and CEOs is a desire to hire seasoned VPs and managers I'm intrigued would you say this is something that you'd subscribe to and how does your kind of hiring theory work towards hiring the fresh out of college grads jack of all trades enthusiasm versus the more kind of experienced Salesforce badge wearing VP so it, it varies in the stage that you have, that you are. Right? And when you're Series A and then to early Series B, I don't think you hire personalities so much as you hire character. And you hire people with headroom that are special forces that can do more than one job. But as you get older and more mature as a company, you can hire more specialist, more um, specialist skill sets to execute the function. But I pride myself on hiring people that I want to see grow and I want to see do better in life. And I'm sometimes caught up in that a little bit too much. So I would typically hire people that we can nurture and grow. And then I have a board of directors that will volunteer and help those people grow. So 
what I try and do is I do a mix. Early on, you probably have 80% um, up and comers, what I would call it, and then 20% season. And then kind of as the company matures to series B, C, and D, you get more and more mature people in. Hopefully those people that come in with you from the series A, like you know, what I said, 80%, they've matured up and they've come along with you. But you know, the amount of seasons versus people that you want to nurture and grow and, and everything else rotates as the company grows. But you hope those people make the journey with you. Do you think, uh, do, you think some, do you think that's possible? I hear a lot of founders say some are just not flexible enough to make that transition upstream. Yeah, it's very hard. Yeah, it's very, very hard to make the transition. The people that get you from A to E in a company's life rarely get you to M to W to Z. It's very, very hard. But you never let you 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 want to see people grow, you want to see people lean in. At my last company, it got bought by EMC for a few hundred million. I think six of my employees have gone on to be CEOs. And uh, and that's a good thing, right? You see them kind of grow up and move, move on. And I'm sure whenever the armor exits uh, and, and whichever way it does, you're going to see, I bet you from here, you're going to see at least 10 people move on to being a CEO at some time within, the next two, within two or three years of, of the exit. So you're right. It's very hard to do. To do and it's, it's very hard to make the decision, say, hey, you're not making the trip uh, on, on exec staff or even in the company. But I think you got to give people a shot, particularly when you're early on and you're trying to find the product model, you're trying to find the customer model and trying to get the product to work. Um, those people that join you in that Series A and the Series B model, you've got to give them a shot to grow. Then you just have to be strong and make a decision whether they can or can't make it. Well, Tim, in terms of making it, uh, I'm incredibly excited for the future ahead with V-Armor uh, and surpassing the few hundred million from EMC last time, I have no doubt. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show today. As we said, uh, a welcome addition having another Brit. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Harry. I really appreciate it. And again, I want to say a huge thanks to Tim for giving up the time today to come on the show and fantastic to hear the incredible journey with V-Armor. And again, a big hand to Jonathan at Workbench for the intro to Tim today, without which this episode would not have been possible. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. You can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK, or you can follow Tim on Twitter at Eads50. It would be great to see you on those respective platforms. But before we leave you today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business. And that's where reviews Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all SASTA listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.